You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. These pills are fine to pass the time. Till I find my new drug, we'll take a chance. We'll last a month. And there's one more line. We'll never speak again. Oh, how I love being in love. They are talking about what we are talking about today. How to wreck your life. Make it all about love. Turn with me in a Bible if you want to, or on an app on a phone if you want to. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today. 1 Corinthians 7, we're going to be at verse 8. We're continuing in our series, How to Wreck Your Life. And probably you're getting pretty good at it by now. 1 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it is well for them to remain unmarried, as I am. But if they are not practicing self-control, then they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does separate, let her remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, and not the Lord, that if any believer has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not bound. It is to peace that God has called you. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. However that may be, let each of you lead the life that the Lord has assigned, to which God has called you. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But obeying the commandments of God is everything. Let each of you remain in the condition in which you were called. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. First Corinthians is a book that is famous for the beautiful things that it says about love. You have heard many of them in weddings. It sounds like this. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love never fails. And Paul is about to say this and some more beautiful things about love. And he'll also say things like, if you don't have love, you have nothing. So how can we say that you will wreck your life if you make it all about love? Now, there are different kinds of love, and you don't want to get them confused. I love my grandma. I love Cheetos. Amen. I love my friends. I love my wife. I love Jesus. These are different kinds of loves, and you don't want to get them confused. 
You don't want to confuse, say, my love of Cheetos with your love of the opposite sex. Things will go badly, right? Because I love Cheetos. I have a deep, passionate hunger that only a Cheeto can satisfy. But once satisfied, well, they're disposable. I don't need them anymore. Has anyone ever been in a dating relationship like that? Mm, yeah, not a lot of fun. Pornography, another confusion of these loves, where you take something really good and you turn it into the love of an object and it dehumanizes somebody else and it dehumanizes you and slowly and steadily those loves get really twisted up and it becomes very difficult actually to love someone in a romantic way because you're so used to loving people as objects. This isn't just something that the church would say. This is something that secular counselors would tell you, that comedians will tell you. It will wreck your life. Don't get those loves confused. Tinder, right, was an app that was created by people who badly misunderstood the loves. The whole point of Tinder was to be a casual hookup app. That was its purpose. But the people who actually used the app, slowly and steadily, would probably have told you that there isn't really any such thing as meaningless sex. There's no such thing as casual sex. And there's a little bit more that we're looking for than swiping left or swiping right. And so I've known a surprising number of people who've been in real relationships through Tinder and have officiated weddings that came out of Tinder, and they're healthy people. It surprises the creators of Tinder and the people who are on it that consistently really good relationships come out of something like this because that's what we're actually looking for. It's not bad to date on the Internet. Just make sure you're not looking for an object. And remember that some people are. Hmm. Now, married couples... You think that marriage is a solution to all of this. It solves that problem for us. Well, I'm not single. I don't have to deal with that anymore. I think if we're really honest and we take a good look at ourselves, most of the time when you get married, you discover all of a sudden that you're really bad at love because there's this other person right there all the time. And suddenly you realize, actually, no, I'm a great human being for like 15 minutes a day. And the rest of the, like if you're around me all the time, it's going to be really bad. And that's, that's sort of what happens in marriage. You, you discover, actually, that you were sort of expecting someone to meet all of your emotional needs. And that you were looking for someone to meet all of your sexual needs. And you weren't really looking for it, but you sort of thought you'd be able to control the situation sometimes or manipulate people sometimes. And this isn't the most healthy thing in the world, to expect someone to serve you and not serve in return, to listen and not to be listened to in return. Object love and romantic love, we don't want to get them confused because that's a really good way to get divorced. Paul spends a lot of time in this passage talking about divorce. The Bible has a lot to say about divorce. It's an ugly thing. Nobody knows this better than people who have experienced divorce. Either people who've been divorced or the children of divorce or people who love folks who are in really toxic, terrible relationships. Divorce is a really ugly and painful thing. And Paul is trying to help us to avoid it. He says, look, here's the secret. Here's the silver bullet. If you want to dodge this terrible thing, don't get married. That's what he says in verse 8. Marriage, it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful gift. It's amazing. Totally. But like, really, though, don't get married. Like, just don't do it. That's, that's what he says in verse 8. Uh, to the unmarried and to the widows, to those who have been married and to those who maybe have never been married, I say it's a really good idea. Stay that way. I'm that way. I'm happy. I'm good. 
This is what Paul says. He has a great deal of credibility because he's living this life. He's not telling other people to live differently than he is. He's embraced a way of life that he's found some real meaning and value in it. He's inviting us into it. Singleness is a gift, like marriage is a gift. And this is a very countercultural idea. It's countercultural in Paul's time, and it's countercultural in our time. In Paul's time, marriage was a really fun thing. And it was something that the society around you was actually pressuring you into all of the time. That sounds strange to us in our time, but the, the society would just really want you to get married. That was a, a, something that young men did. That was a sign that you were you know, becoming a man. That was a, a way to get heirs. It, well, mostly people got married for advantage, not for love. It's not to say love wasn't on the menu, but like advantage was the thing. A way to climb the social ladder, a way to get some money, to get a nice piece of land, to solve a problem with your enemies. And so people would get married and people would get divorced and people would get married in order to climb that ladder. This was a thing at the time. Strange as that sounds, I don't know if you've ever seen this on The Real Housewives of Atlanta. I don't know if you know that that actually is a thing that people do sometimes, that marriage is useful to people. And so people would you know, be divorced for about six months. And in the writings of the time, we know that you should get married again, get back on the horse. Somebody dies, you got a year, then get back on the horse. Twelve-year-old girls are getting married because there's this intense cultural pressure at the time. And Paul is saying, yeah, ignore what your family says. Ignore what society says. You are already loved by God. You are already complete and loved and enough. You do not need another person. In our time, that again is a very countercultural idea. Not because society wants us to get married, but society would love it if we would couple up. Like, that's a really important thing to us in our time. Think about the number of places you've seen in romantic comedies or sitcoms, the phrase soulmate, which maybe you love the idea of soulmates, but the idea of soulmates is this, that there is someone out there that has the missing part of me, and until I find them, I'm not a complete person, which means that single people will never be complete people. Now, that's crazy, but something people absolutely believe in our time. Uh, think about TV shows like The Bachelor, a reality TV show in which people are in a relationship or someone has a harem. That might be a better way of saying it. And you get to choose, male or female, your favorite among the lot. And then they get married and, oh, look, love. Does that look like love? To, uh, I don't know. That doesn't, that doesn't seem like the healthiest thing in the world to me. Think about the number of times in our culture that people talk about sex and how sex is so built into our identity and who we are. And I, I really question if we could talk about the idea that you could be a virgin for your whole life, if our culture would understand or accept that. I think you'd be missing out on what it means to be human. I think that's what people would say. We don't understand what Paul is talking about in our time any more than they understood it then. It's a completely countercultural idea. You remember the TV show, How I Met Your Mother? For years. This guy is looking for the one. It's the whole show. Imagine if we said, I've already found the one. His name is Jesus. I may end up with somebody else at some point in my life, but I'm good. I have found the one, and his name is Jesus. But in the church, somehow we managed to not talk about this because we have just as much trouble in the church as we do out there in the world. We like marriage a lot more, but other than that, things are pretty similar in terms of coupling people up. I think Noah's Ark is the problem for us. We just The two-by-two two thing is just really compelling. In the Bible, we've never really gotten away from it. Uh, when I was in college, 
I went to the best university uh, in Arizona, U of A. Uh, bear down. Yeah. Uh, it's a wonderful place, I got to tell you. And I, I went, but I went to this non-Christian school, right? And when my friends dated, it was just dating. But in a Christian community, dating is never just dating. Dating is high stakes. Dating is, there's so much writing on each and every coffee, each and every conversation. And I've met people over the years who have been in serial monogamous relationships. I was in, dating somebody for two years, and then we broke up for three days, and then I found somebody, and we were in a relationship for six months, and then I was single for about 48 hours, and then it's been three years, and I'm really hoping we get married. Something about that seems really unhealthy. Is there nobody in your life that, that wants to point out that maybe you could be single for a little while and spend a little time figuring yourself out? Why do you need someone else to be okay? My brothers went to a Christian school, and I remember one particular day, Ben and I were talking, and he explained that there was a thing called ring by spring. Okay, some people are chuckling. You know what that is. I had never heard of this before. At U of A, peer pressure is you know, about drinking and drugs. In, at a Christian school, it's about getting married as fast as you possibly can. <laughs> I love love. I love being in love. I don't care what it does to me. Right? There's a really disconcerting thing. that The ring by spring, it, you could find someone to get engaged to, to get married to as quickly as possible, because this is the window. And if I don't find somebody, what does that say about me? And so you can meet young Christian men and women who at the age of 23 think, I'm going to die alone. You are 23 years old. You're going to live a really long time. There, might, you may have, there's, there, there may be at least one other person out there. You may have a shot. But the church is really uncomfortable with the idea of single folks. And so we accidentally sort of reinforce this strange obsession with finding somebody and coupling up. There are a lot of couples Bible studies in churches. And there are singles groups. Groups. Not, and they rarely mix and mingle. And this has led some of my friends to say that there is an idolatry in the American church. Friends of mine who have been single into their 20s and their 30s and their 40s and their 50s. They've just stayed celibate and single and are really okay. They, yeah, there's an idolatry in the American church. They hold up this mirror to us. Friends of mine who've been widowed or widowers gotten divorced and say, I'm just going to be single from here on out. It's like the church can't read what the Bible says about relationships, and they consistently seem to think that I need to be set up with somebody, that I'm not okay as long as I'm me. At one point in my life, uh, I was invited to a church uh, by some friends, uh, an older couple, and we met up with some friends at the church, and there was a pastor who came up to us, and we're all chatting, and the woman of the couple who brought us, it was a really nice time, uh, looked at me, by the way, I'm in my, uh, like, 26, 27. And she looks at me, and then she looks at the pastor who walked over and says, so are there any single people at this church? Looks at me, and then looks back at him. Or are they all married? And there was this long, awkward pause, and then everyone just sort of laughed uncomfortably, and she genuinely didn't realize that she'd done something really weird. <laughs> it was a strange moment for everyone involved except her. And again, I was thinking, man, do you, like, am I not okay in your mind? Like, do you not like me the way that I, you think that I need someone to, to fix me, to make me whole? Maybe you don't believe that there's an idolatry in the American church. There's a guy named uh, David Zoll who wrote this book called Seculosity. And he gives us a checklist um, about idolatry and particularly for relationships. Uh, would you mind pulling it up for me? So the, the first question would be this. Um, do we ritualize it into oblivion? Romance. Now think about all religions and how they need rituals. 
Now think about the number of wedding magazines there are, how much people are willing to spend on weddings, on the engagement photo shoots, on the things that are baked into weddings that have nothing to do with marriage, dollar dances, father-daughter dances, conga lines, things being thrown over shoulders. Think about all of the rituals we've got baked into this. Does that sound like a religion to you? Next thing, uh, do we look to our relationships to tell us we are enough? Hmm. Next question. Do our relationships house our primary guilt management system? Do they let us deal with our insecurities? Hmm. Married people, you're not off the hook here. I'm not off the hook. And the next question, does romance offer us a path to transcendence and theoretical salvation? Think about the language people use. I was lost before I found you. You complete me. I don't know what I'd do without you. And Paul tells us in verse 9, thank you, you can blame. Those who are not practicing self-control, yeah, it'd be better if they married than if they burned. And that's a really literal translation there, but at one level this implies, right, that we should get married if we want to have sex. And that's not a really good way to look at marriage. That's a confusion of loves. That's a confusion of what Paul is really talking about there. Essentially, the, the self-control that he's talking about, a, a good translation of this, according to a variety of Greek scholars and New Testament scholars, uh, would be, um, well, so the word is enkrateomai, and it's an unusual Greek word for self-control. But it basically would refer to an inner confidence, a kind of peace, a grittiness when it comes to your identity, so that nobody can tell you who you really are, and your di desires don't get to tell you who you are. and You're just sort of in complete control of yourself. Somebody like that, doesn't need to get married. They might get married, but they don't need to get married. But if you don't have that going on, yeah, it might be better to get married because this is just burning you up. You can't stop thinking about it. You can't stop obsessing over it, and it's distracting you from the actually important things like the kingdom of God. Paul says singleness is a gift. And still, I think, for single folks, it's a really challenging thing. And I know that it's a painful thing sometimes, and it's hard to wait sometimes if you really want to get married. So just to be clear, Paul isn't saying you have to be single. He's not putting this on you, that you're somehow unfaithful or a bad Christian if you want to get married. But what he's saying is that you should be really careful about the reasons you want to get married. Why is this burning you up in this way? Have you maybe confused your loves? Because sometimes we're really looking for somebody that's going to solve all of our problems, that's going to love me exactly the way that I am all the time, It's going to meet all of my needs exactly when I, that's going to push me, but just as far as I want to be pushed and no further, and only on the days that I feel like being pushed, that's going to serve me, and that I can serve, but only really when I feel like it from time to time. That's sort of what we're looking for in a relationship. And if that's what you're looking for, when you get married, you will be badly disappointed. It's not, an, it's not an accident to me that verse 9, which says you can get married, follows immediately with a conversation about divorce. If the thing that's burning you up is the reason you're going to get married, just know that marriage is a permanent thing. That's the rule in Christianity. Now, there's an exception to the rule. There are such things as toxic and abusive marriages. There are bad marriages to get out of, but that's the rule in Christianity. And you're going to get into this, and I'm not sure you're really thinking it through. I don't know that you know what you're looking for, because our individualistic culture and our weird Christian culture don't seem to be preparing you well for what marriage actually is. There's a remarkable uh, marriage counselor named Esther Perel. 
And she talks about how our culture has changed and how that sort of affected the way we look at marriages. She says, we come to one person and we're basically asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging. Give me an identity. Give me continuity. But give me transcendence and mystery and awe all in one. And these next ones are mutually exclusive. Give me comfort. Give me edge. Give me novelty. Give me familiarity. Give me predictability. Give me surprise. We have an unrealistic view of marriage. Marriage is a gift. I am married. I love being married. Be very careful about marriage. Those of you who are in marriages, be very careful about love in marriage. Because you may be looking at somebody that you are in a permanent relationship with and thinking, I could probably do better somewhere else. I might be able to find some of these things somewhere else. I, got, I rushed into this. I got married too young. I, you know, we didn't know each other really well. You know, you've really changed. You're not the person I thought I was going to marry. Be very careful. Very careful. Not to confuse your loves. Sometimes what we're looking for, single, married, beyond married, what we're looking for in a relationship is an odd combination of an object kind of love and a God kind of love, we're sort of blending them together. Somebody who's going to meet all my needs, who's going to give me thing, everything I need. Somebody who just solves the, the things that I really want right now, but also someone who can just sort of do everything I need them to do all the time. The thing Esther Perel is talking about, that's, that's a God. That's what she's describing. Only God can really give you those things. And if you're looking for them in a relationship, you will destroy that relationship. One of the weird things about idolatry is it has a, a way of destroying the very people who worship. The, when you bow down before a particular God, if it's not the real God, it has a way of wrecking you. So people who are constantly concerned about getting into a relationship have a way of coming across as desperate and needy. And, well, they don't end up in the kind of relationships that they really want. You're already someone dearly and deeply loved by God a deep, strong sense of identity. Paul elsewhere in this letter will say, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You were bought with a price. Elsewhere in the Bible we'd say, you are made in the image of God. You are dearly and deeply loved, married and single. It's a gift. You really don't need to get married. It's not a bad thing. I'm married, I like it. I don't wish that I wasn't married. But Paul later in this letter, Later in 1 Corinthians 7, we'll talk about the advantages that come with being single-minded in our devotion to the Lord, not being distracted. Because one of the problems when you marry somebody is that you're thinking, well, I need to love you well, but I need to follow Jesus. And you're constantly trying to figure out what that looks like and how to do that well. There's this amazing gift in not having a wife, not having a husband. And in verses 12 to 16, Paul starts talking about what can happen if you're married to somebody who isn't as interested in Jesus as you are. It can, it can really cause some tension. It can feel like you're being torn apart. Even in that situation, he says, he and not the Lord. If you can, stick with it. Who knows what God could do in that relationship? And yet, if that relationship turns really toxic and somebody wants out, that question in verse 16, who knows? It's not pessimistic and it's not optimistic. It's an actual question. Who knows? There's no guarantee so don't stay with a relationship because you can save somebody. Only Jesus can save somebody. But these verses highlight a really important thing. You don't want to be in a relationship with somebody, if you're dating, who does not love Jesus the way that you love Jesus. If Jesus is the most important thing in your life, 
they're never going to understand until they come to know Jesus. There was a South African guy I was reading this week who is not a Christian, and he was talking about his wife who became a Christian, and he says, you know, it's really hard because before it was like we were together, and now it's like there's another man in the house. And they, they make decisions together, and I don't really get it. I'm not really a part of it, and it, I still love her, but it's hard. If you marry somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus the way that you believe in Jesus, it's going to be a challenge when you want to go to church with your kids and they don't. It's going to be a challenge when you want to go to a men's retreat or a women's retreat and they don't even understand. It's going to be a challenge when you want to give money to the kingdom of God and they go, that's our money. It's hard when those values and those priorities don't line up. This is one of the reasons that there's a phrase in the Bible to be equally yoked. It's something Paul talks about. A weird Christian dating site picked up on that phrase, which is unfortunate sometimes. But it's good advice, actually. Good advice to be going in the same direction, to have the same values, if possible. And yet God can use you in marriages where somebody no longer believes in Jesus. Paul's probably envisioning a world where you were in a marriage and then you came to know Jesus. And there's some evidence in the history of the church that this is actually one of the ways that the church grew, that people came to know Jesus. That one spouse would come to know the Lord and they would become this different person. And they would get so much better at love. And the guy right next to you, the girl right next to you goes, what happened to you? I, I stopped being your priority and somehow I'm more your priority. And the witness that happened in people's marriages and their families really did make people holy in the language of Paul. And then all of a sudden at the very end, he just shifts in verse 17, starts talking about circumcision. Weird left turn in the conversation. We've been talking about marriage, and there's a weird, like, why? And he's saying things like, you know, if you're circumcised, don't try to get uncircumcised. I don't know what that means. Uh, I think it's very good advice. Uh, I, I, I do not want, I, that's, that sounds like great advice, and I don't even want to know anymore about the situation. Uh, if you are uncircumcised, don't try and get circumcised. It's good news, gentlemen. Good news in the Bible here and there. I don't think that Paul has just randomly changed the subject. I think he's actually giving us an illustration of what he's been talking about. The idea that circumcision is nothing, that uncircumcision is nothing, that's a very countercultural idea for Paul. That circumcision is a permanent mark that you belong to someone. The kind of mark that, that maybe some people would be jealous of and would want for themselves. It doesn't matter, he says. Uncircumcision is a certain kind of freedom. And if it doesn't matter, well, it'd be really nice if I looked like everybody else. Doesn't matter, Paul says. Keeping the commandments of God, that's everything. That's everything. Don't worry about the situation you're in. God has called you in this time and this season exactly the way that you are. He's not worried that you're not married. He's not worried that you are married. He's not worried that you are divorced. He's not worried that you're really trying to figure this out. He loves you the way that you are, and he's got you in his hands. And so we don't want to confuse our loves. Some years back, uh, in the early years of our marriage, actually, um, like maybe the first eight months, 
there was this season, I was, there was this particular day, actually, where I was just really grateful for my life. You know, when that happens, all of a sudden, just weirdly. And I'm a deep cynic. It's something God's healing in me. So when that happens, it's like, all of a sudden, the lights turned on in a very dark, like, I'm grateful today. This is really nice. And I was looking at my wife, and she's smoking hot, by the way. And I'm just so grateful for everything that God's done for me and given me. And I'm looking at Jess, and she's kind of like not paying attention and thinking about something. I'm just the luckiest man in the world. And so I look at my wife, and I say, I'm just... I love you more than anyone else in the whole world. And she looks over at me and says, you better not. And I knew exactly what she meant, and it drove me crazy. And exactly, This is marriage. It drove me crazy in exactly that moment. She says, you better not. You better not love me more. You better love me less than you love Jesus. Why is this an opportunity for this kind of conversation? I was just trying to tell you I love you. This is really not a moment to correct me right now. I love you. I also love Jesus. I'm not saying I don't love Jesus. I'm extremely grateful that my wife is someone who will consistently say to me, you better not love me more than you love Jesus. You better not. Because you'll end up loving me less. And it's annoying and she's right. C.S. Lewis says it this way in a letter that he wrote in 1952. C.S. Lewis, by the way. To love you as I should, I must worship God as creator. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall not be moving towards the state and I shall be moving toward the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. When you love your wife, when you love your husband, second. When you love God first, you end up loving your husband or your wife better. Your boyfriend or your girlfriend better. Because you don't put them into the role of God. And you don't put them into the role of an object. And so you love them the way they're supposed to be loved. And that love gets deeper and richer. How to wreck your life? Make it all about the wrong kind of love. Love first things first, and you get second things thrown in. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus.